I want to tell you today about the parable of the big dumb dummy. So a very wealthy businessman, a billionaire, had a son, and his son had been accepted into business school at Stanford, and he was very proud of his son. And so he decided to bequeath part of his business over to his son to get the ball rolling. So he hands him a $10 million company. He says, son, I'm signing this over to you. We're going to get you started. And while you're at Stanford, I'm going to let you work with the managers of this company and manage this company. And by the time you get out, you have, will have built such a docket, such a resume, that you'll be able to accomplish anything. And he says, I'm going to rent you this apartment just right down the street from, from the university. And uh, we'll get you a nice, nice little apartment on the top floor with some flowers in the window box. And uh, you can live there, rent that from one of my business partners and uh, run this business while you're in college, and by the time you get out, you're, you're going to be golden. Now, this businessman goes away for about a year on business over in Australia and disappears for a while and stays, on, stays in touch via Skype and Facebook and that sort of thing, but comes back a year later and checks in with his son and finds out that his son has made some really radical decisions. He says, son, how's it going? He says, dad, he said, I was going to surprise you with this. I didn't know how long you were going to be away, but I, I figured I'd surprise you that, that I went ahead and right away, as soon as, as, soon as you left, I, I just sold that company because I just, I just thought there's, there's a lot of stuff I could do with that money. So I want to I show you some of the stuff I did. I've been remodeling the apartment, and it's quite nice now, actually. I, had, I, I went ahead and rented all those rooms on the top two floors, and I knocked it all out, and we put up big columns and and nice fixtures and built new windows and just, just made the apartment just really beautiful. And here, come on, come on, Dad, let me, let me show you the, the fixtures in the bathroom. You're not, you're not going to believe this. Check this out. These aren't just gold-plated, all right? These are 24-karat gold handles in the shower. I mean, I just thought, you know, just, just, let's just make the place nice. If I'm going to live here for a little while, let's invest, right? He says, now, now come on, Dad, let's, let's go up to the, uh, to the top floor and let me, let me show you the infinity pool that I had installed. He says, isn't it, isn't it beautiful? The contractors did stuff. I, I had contractors fly in from all over the world to come in here and level the top floor of this entire apartment complex. And landlord had no issues with that. He let me do this. Can you believe that? He says, I, so, I, so I took all that money and I just, I just made the place nice. And I want to share with you what the father said to the son. You, my son, are a big, dumb dummy. Now, I thought about just sharing that parable with you and walking off and just concluding the service. <laughs> Drop the mic and process for a while. Why is he a dummy? I mean, what, what are some reasons that he's a dummy? This, feel free to speak out loud. Exactly. That's, that's it. You nailed it. He's renting the place. This is temporary lodging, and he put everything into it. And that makes him what? A big, dumb dummy. Amen. See you next week. We're on a series called The One. This is part two of The One called Don't Get Cozy. In, in the clip that you saw, what was the guy's name, Jordan? You knew his name, the character. Where's Jordan? Uh, Cypher. Cypher is, is the character's name. And, of course, uh, again, major spoil alert. If you haven't seen The Matrix, you had 18 years to do so. I blame you. <laughs>
In the Matrix, what you find is that there's kind of two worlds, and one is an illusionary world that has been placed in the minds of people to hold, keep them under control. So the world that they think they're experiencing, where they're touching and tasting and feeling and hearing and walking around and having jobs, isn't the actual world. The reality is that they're in kind of a, a cocoon somewhere and having their energy siphoned out while their brains are being fed signals. Okay? Sorry about the spoiler, but there it is. Cypher, so some of the people are woken up in the actual world, in the real world, but then they have this electric, electronic ability to enter the matrix, which is what you see in, this, in the second part of that. So when he's talking to Neo and giving him a drink, that's the real world. And the matrix world is, is the world that we're used to seeing. And we find out that Cypher is tired of the real world. He's tired of that existence. He's tired of the food. He's tired. He, reality doesn't suit him. So he decides to invest everything in the matrix. He says, the steak is delicious. I want to be rich. I don't, want to rem I don't even want to think about that. I want to remember nothing. Nothing. I want, to be, I want to be somebody important. I want people to admire me. I want to have a nice place. And when you watch the matrix, it's funny how we watch the matrix and we realize he's kind of the bad guy. He's the betrayer. He, he, he's, he's the mole in the works. But unfortunately for many of us, we live the cipher life, but don't ever recognize it as anything dangerous or bad. We invest in the world we can touch and feel and smell and walk around in and have jobs in. And I think if you read the New Testament and if you read the teachings of Jesus, Jesus would say, there is this other world. There... there and it isn't necessarily coinciding with this, with this world like, like it would be in the Matrix. But there is this idea that this ain't it. He'll, as we'll read here in just a little bit, it says this, this world right now where you have a job and you have a home and maybe you're raising a family and maybe you play video games and maybe you go on vacations, that this ain't it. This, this is, it's kind of a nothing. It's not reality. I had a death in the family this week. It was Mary Ruth Grumley, who is the lovely lady you see on the right. This is PJ Grumley, who died almost exactly a year ago. They had been married for 60 plus years, which is pretty uncommon. She was 91 years old when she passed away this week. And so I drove to Paducah for the funeral, and I was talking to some of the family. Uh, beautiful lady, wonderful lady. She's the first person that taught me how to cuss. Um, she, she used to say the word corn. That was her, she'd say, if something bad happens, she'd say, oh, corn. And that's, that's how I learned to cuss, was from that lovely lady right there, corn. But just a wonderful family, incredible people. But apparently, he, he died just over a year ago, and the, the anniversary of his death, precisely one year later, she was doing fine. She was going through life. She was vibrant. She was, she was coherent. To the day, one year later, she just went, just crashed. And she got to the point where she was, and this is, this is her, my cousins and, and family members telling me these stories, but it got to the point where she, she was babbling when she would talk. She, she couldn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and, and this lasted quite some time, apparently, a few days, where you know, she said nothing coherent. And at some point, my, my cousin came in and held her hand and said, said, said Mom, it, it, was, it was her daughter, said, Mom, do you want to pray? And she nodded her head. And they both together recited the Lord's Prayer just precisely. 
It's the only coherent thing, almost the only coherent thing she said for several days was she held hands with her daughter and she recited the Lord's Prayer. And then, very soon before she died, she at some point said something to someone who was bedside about mountains and gates. They were asking her what she saw, and she said something about mountains and gates. Here's something that personally impacts me and fascinates me, is at some point in that whole deal, during, during that whole thing where she was babbling and incoherent, she kind of sat up at one point and just said, bacon. <laughs> I don't know. But I'm putting gates and mountains and bacon in together. I, I think that's a thing. I think, I think the streets are paved with gold, but like all along the way there are vendors, and the vendors are doing the bacon thing. And I think my Aunt Mary Ruth saw it with her own eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Again, thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Scripture teaches that this isn't the end, that this is a blip on the screen, that this life is, is kind of a nothing. It's a breath. It's a mist is what Scripture describes it. And my contention today is that if you invest everything into that mist, you are... A big dumb dummy, right? I don't want to be a big dumb dummy. I don't want to spend millions on my rental house. I want to invest it well. It's a theme you see consistently throughout Scripture. In Hebrews it says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Now that's a paraphrased version that fit the title of my sermon, so I used it. John, uh, John records this sermon that Jesus did. So right before Jesus died, they had a big meal together. He and all, all his best friends, they had a meal together. And during that meal, he stands up over the meal and he prays for his friends. And this is part of what he prays. Um, he, he's praying about them and he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, the world hates you. So he says this to them and then he prays for them. He says, Father, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus gets a little repetitive here. And they say if you're a teacher, if you really want some, somebody to get something, you've got to say it about seven times. And so in his last address to his best friends, Jesus really wants to emphasize this to them. This ain't all. This isn't the whole world. This, these theater seats where you're sitting in and the delicious popcorn you're eating, it's, just, it's, it's delicious steak in the matrix. It's, it's going to be here and gone in just a moment. And it's important that we recognize this, because, and, and, and as we'll talk about as we go on, when you recognize it, it impacts who you are. So we want to talk about being the one, and, and we talked about that last week. If you didn't, if you didn't get to hear it, I, I would encourage you to go back and, and watch the video or listen to the video. But it's this idea that each one of you in every seat in here, you are beautifully designed by a loving God, and there's a mission in your life. That you have this ability that I don't have, that Bill DeGoyer doesn't have, that Byron and Ed don't have, that you are someone unique with unique abilities. Now, if Somehow the evil one, which we talked about a little bit last week, can get you trapped in the matrix where all you care is about sensuality and materials, uh, then, then your ability to be the one that God designed you to be is seriously hindered. And so it's important that we, we recognize what Scripture teaches on this. I was in uh, Ireland years ago, and I don't know if, if, you've, if you've been to Ireland, 
there's a really good chance that you've been asked, are you Catholic or Protestant? I mean, it's just shocking. Like, you know, we say, how are you enjoying the weather? They say, are you Catholic or Protestant? I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And, and it's because there were, there were fights between the Catholics and Protestants that ended up in killing and violence with, for, for years and years. And there's kind of this border still. It's, it's not the same as it used to be. There's not the bombings and the hatred, but there's still a schism there. There's no question. And part of that schism, this cavern between, is, is the cavern between the southern part of the island, which is Ireland, and then northern Ireland, which is a country of its own. And there's a border between the two. It's just a row, it's just a sign on the side of the road that says North Ireland. And you go in, and we were driving to Belfast. And I noticed very quickly, and I don't remember where the Protestant Catholic side, I don't remember who's on which side. But I do remember crossing the border into North Ireland and thinking, this is an alien land. Like, it was such a different world. They're all Irish people speaking in Irish accents, but in North Ireland, it's a lot thicker and kind of more guttural and way harder to understand. In, in the southern portion of Ireland, if you go into a pub and there's a live, live, live music going on and you eat some food, you just kind of fit in. Everybody recognizes you're American, but... But you don't, you don't feel out of place. In North Ireland, man, as soon as we stopped to get gas, I just felt like everybody was looking at me like, what are you doing here? I mean, it was just a, it was just a different world. And I found this really interesting street sign that's in Belfast, Ireland, which I found fascinating. No entry to Joy Street in Belfast, right? But there was this sense when I crossed over into that land that I didn't belong there. It was like, you ain't from around here, are you? That's how we'd say it here. And it was that sense. And I have the contention that in this world, in this, uh, I don't want to say the matrix, because it's, it's, a, it's a different animal, but, but in this world of touch and taste and sight and seeing and having jobs and sitting in seats eating popcorn, you really aren't from here as far as scripture is concerned. That this isn't home. This isn't your place. And to invest here is silly. There, there ought to be a sense about you that this isn't where I belong. There ought to be kind of an attitude and a feeling inside you that says this isn't all there is. And that's, that's part of what I believe Jesus wants to accomplish. And so I'm going to introduce you to what I will call the Andy Dufresne method of life. Who knows who Andy Dufresne is? Yeah. Shawshank Redemption. You know, Andy Dufresne is wrongly accused of a crime and sent to prison, to a very, very hard prison, for a very, very long time. And the character, played by Morgan Freeman, Red, describes him like this. I could see why some of the boys took him for snobby. He had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. And I'm sorry I can't do this in his voice, because I know if I would just let you read it, you would read it in Morgan Freeman's voice. He strolled like a man in a park without a care or a worry in the world. And that should be capitalized, and it's not, and that's my fault. Like he had an invisible coat. No, it shouldn't. I'm, I'm going to evaluate my grammar for you guys today as a sermon. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> like he had an invisible coat that would shield him from this place. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say I liked Andy from the start. And if you watch the scene, Andy's trying to collect rocks, so that little, little soapstone, uh, rocks so that he can carve chess pieces out of them. So he's, he's walking around the grounds of the prison like this, just, just like he doesn't have a care in the world. He's got his hands in his pocket, and every now and then he'll pick up a rock and throw it in the air and catch it and 
put it in his pocket. And that's, that's what Morgan Freeman is, is describing in this scene, is this, this Andy Dufresne reality that this isn't me. That this, I am not trapped by these walls. I am not trapped by this prison. I, I am something separate from all of that. And I think if, so a lot of times we, re, we read something like what, what Jesus said, where, where, where Jesus says, because of you're, not, you're not of this world, the world hates you. And we, draw, we want to draw battle lines. We, we want to say, okay, well, then that means the Christians are here and everybody that's not a Christian is over here. And we just have to take a stand for ourselves in this world, that we're, the world, in our flesh. And, we, and, and that's how we handle it. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily what Jesus meant by that at all. If you watch the show, if you watch the movie Shawshank, I think it gives you some insight into what it looks like if you're Andy Dufresne. If you're Andy Dufresne, you get taken advantage of. If you're Andy Dufresne and you walk around saying, I don't have a care in the world, I'm not attached to the same things you guys are attached to, I'm not trapped by the same walls that you guys are trapped by, and it doesn't mean that you're abrasive and angry and, and making them the enemy. It just means that I'm, I'm in a different world here. I'm going to walk around with my hands in my pocket, enjoying the day, seeing the beauty of God, enjoying the, the, the loveliness of relationships, and some people will just hate you for it. Some people, that just rubs them completely the wrong way because they want chaos. They want difficulty. And it's not, it's not that you're stirring up that difficulty. It's just that you're detached. And in a sense, that's the whole concept is detachment. That's, that's kind of what Jesus would ascribe to, I think, is detachment from this world, saying this world ain't where it's at. So I have a couple pieces of advice. Number one is to become an expert appraiser. It means take some time to figure out what is really valuable and invest in what is valuable, which will be point number two. It's, it's to look around and say, what is truly important in this life? And do my priorities line up with what is truly important? Jesus, he told parables all the time. The big dumb dummy was not his. I'll just throw that out there in case you were thinking maybe. Nope. <laughs> But in one chapter of the Bible, he tells multiple parables, and kind of all of them have the same theme. And he tells two very short parables. In, in, in terms of Scripture, there are two verses. Each one occupies about two verses. And in one of them, in the first one, he describes, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he describes treasure, treasure that's hidden in a field. So this is, if you want to know what the dominion of God looks like, then it looks like treasure. And then he says, it's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So right one after the other, he kind of, again, he does this repetition thing. He's trying to get a point across. He's trying to be a good teacher, and good teachers say the same things over and over until the student gets it. That's what Jesus is saying through this whole chapter. He says, it's, it, it, he says the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like fine pearls. So... First off, I want to point out that this other world that we're talking about, a lot of times we view Christianity or the Andy Dufresne idea or um, you look at, at Cypher and the Matrix. We look at real life, like living life, the kingdom life. There's this concept in, in the world that kind of paints a picture of boredom and, and sexual frustration and poverty. It, 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 there's kind of this idea that if you're going to be a Jesus-centered person, that it's, there's a lot of bad stuff that you, you're going to have to embrace. Or at least, it's, it's almost like we have this concept of heaven that is angels on harps, and that's it. And that does sound pretty dang boring. It's like, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to give up all the good stuff. 
And Jesus, in these parables, starts off by saying, if you're going to embrace the kingdom of God, you're actually embracing some really nice stuff. You're giving up some junk. You're giving up the rental place that is lousy in exchange for something really great. And then he continues, and he talks about the, the treasure hidden in the field. He says, in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then in the second parable, the, the pearl of great price, he says, on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, repetition here, and what do you notice that he repeats in, at the end of each parable? What is the response to finding the treasure that he says twice? Buying it by doing what? Selling everything. He says the kingdom of God is so valuable, so great. Being connected to God and having his life ebbing and flowing through you is so great that it's worth everything. That there's nothing that comes close to the value. I have a question, and I, I, I I couldn't decide if I wanted to phrase this as a question or just put some words on the screen and talk about them, and I'm, I'm still not convinced this is even great slides. So if this turns out to be just stupid, skip to the next slide. But I wanted to ask this, is would you rather be rich materially and sensually, and it should say spiritually, or spiritually and relationally? Like what, I mean, what is a real treasure in your life? And, and, and part of my confusion is the sensual side because I know, I know within marriage and such, and even in your friendships, there's a certain amount of touching that we would consider value. So I don't want to at all pretend that to be spiritual or to be relational means not to be material or not to be sensual. I don't mean that at all. But if you're going to invest your life in one of these areas, if you're going to, let's say, prioritize your life, if you're going to prioritize what is truly value, which end of the sentence turns out to be really, really value? Is it having a bunch of stuff? Is it feeling good and feeling comforted, experiencing pleasure? Or is there something deeper that would be more on the spiritual side, that would be more on the relational side? Again, you have to be material and sensual in order for those things to, to be what they can possibly be. So I'm not trying to say anything of this otherwise. But a lot of times what happens is in this life, we want the delicious steak. We want to be somebody that people admire. We want to be rich. We want to, we want to think nothing at all about that side of the world. And I, I think Jesus in the New Testament would say that's, that's a matter of priorities that's, that are out of whack. That instead, if you're going to invest your entire life, if you're going to go and sell all that you have, and you have one life to live. Sounds like a soap, doesn't it? You have one life to live. You get one shot, one life, and you're going to invest it in something. And I think Jesus would say, invest in the inner life. Invest in the relational life. Invest in the spiritual life. Take steps necessary in order to show where you invest. In the book of Colossians, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek... This is, this is one of my favorite passages. Colossians 3.2 says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind... That's a, that's a great little portion of a sentence to focus on right there. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, we market as a church for not-so-churchy people, and I recognize that this is an extremely churchy verse. I'm saying if you're in Christ, you'll appear with him in glory. And every now and then, even in a church for not-so-churchy people, I think it's important that we address the church. And, and it's important that the church, if, if you're not a Christian here today, then just, just listen in on what I'm talking to the church about. I'm not, I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't do. But I am talking about if a person is in Christ, if Christ is their life and a follower of Christ, then a follower of Christ would be like him where the cross is in front of them. And he's not, he's not trying to hold on to anything, but instead he's letting go and relinquishing everything. And if you're going to invest in the spiritual life, that's part of what it looks like. And here's, here's one of those passages that a, a pastor nowadays wants to just kind of skip. I, I really wanted to skip to the second half of this this is, this is continuation in Colossians chapter 3. I wanted to skip to the second half because that's the feel-good part. And that's the part that everybody can come to grips with and everybody can agree with. But in Colossians 3 it says, if you have recognized the pearl of great price, if you've, if you've recognized how important spirituality is and the kingdom of God is and, and you're in Christ, it says there's some things you ought to let go of and there's some things you ought to embrace. And the things you ought to let go of is probably where we would all, you know, in, in, in all of our chairs, if we all talked it out, we'd have disagreements. We would have different views on what even these words mean. But let's just overarchingly say that if you're a follower of Christ, it means letting go of some stuff, some stuff that's detrimental to you, detrimental to love, detrimental to people. And he makes a list, and he says, put to death things like immorality. Again, these are words that we can hash out as to what he means by that. Immorality, impurity, covetousness. So wanting more than you have. He says you ought to just let go of that. Anger, slander, obscene talk. And then it goes on to have a phrase that basically means lying. And, and really on this list, if, let's take lying for example. And this is not a sermon on lying by any stretch. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time if you're lying, it somehow has to do with your connection to what the movie would call the matrix. You're trying to safeguard something. You're trying to keep yourself comfortable, protect your reputation, uh, keep yourself out of harm's way. Most of the, not always, but most of the time. And if you go down this whole list of stuff he says you ought to let go, a lot of it has to do with just being tied into a system that isn't supposed to be your system. Instead, you're supposed to be Andy Dufresne saying, I don't, I don't need all that. I don't have to defend myself. I, I, there's no reason for me to get into a rage. There's no reason for me to just constantly be wanting more because I, this isn't home. I don't, I don't live here anymore. And then the second passage is the passage that I think most of us can agree on is what it ought to look like if you're a follower of Jesus. And it says things like a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, patience, forgiveness, and above all, love. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, I, I would advise you to be careful about this, like at the workplace. I think uh, you don't need to bust out in your favorite modern worship chorus. I, but I do think the Andy Dufresne view that I'm talking about involves some singing. It, it involves some joy in your life. It involves a heart that's kind of bubbling over. And so if you find yourself kind of in, in a, a situation where you're always angry, you're always trying to get more, I would say there's probably something that you should let go of. And, and in my opinion, part of what you need to let go of is just everything. It's letting go of the world, saying, I, I, this isn't me anymore. I don't, I don't need this anymore. And it will, affect, it will affect your actions somewhat, 
But I want to point out a, a few things that it will affect, and, and it affects kind of your motive and your heart behind stuff more than it affects the actions themselves. So my wife and I save up. I've talked to a few people about this already this morning. We save up every five years and we go on a vacation. This is year five. So in two weeks, I will not be thinking about anything except just enjoying some time with my wife. Now, you can go on a vacation, and, and, and you, can, you can really kill yourself worrying too much about motive. So I'm not talking about worrying about motive, but when we talk about vacations, for example, if you're Andy Dufresne, a vacation, uh, if, you, if you saw the movie, he takes a vacation just by drinking beers with his buddy on top of a rooftop. He, he kicks back and finds, finds some shelter of peace in this awful situation. But for a vacation, if, if you're a person who is a follower of Jesus and not living in this world, then there might be the motive or the heart behind it that says, I'm going to go refresh. I'm gonna, in my case, I, I hope most of my heart is that I'm going to go be refreshed so that I can do my job better, so I can love my wife better, I can be closer to her, we'll keep our relationship close, we're going to have these great experiences together that will give us a bond that will last for the rest of our lives. Or I can look at a vacation as kind of the end game. Like this whole life is about vacations. Like I'm, I'm working and slaving and doing everything I can so that I can go enjoy something. And you see that in both situations, I'm still taking a vacation. It's just the difference of whether I'm Andy Dufresne walking through my vacation or that there's something slightly ugly about the vacation. And in every area of life, you'll find the same dilemma. is either you're tied in or you're not. Let's, let's talk about going to work. Now, how many people go to work like this every morning? <laughs> Very. Some do. Some, some do. I talk to some of you, and you're like, I love my job. My job is great. Now, you can, you can, you can go to work because work enables you to be a better Jesus-loving person. It puts food on your table, which gives you strength to do what God has asked you to be the one. You can be thankful for your job and think about the millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions, billions of people out there who don't have jobs. And you can, you can walk in, in what the passage said earlier is being thankful, kind of singing psalms and hymns, like, like, like going in with an attitude that is a God-honoring, God-loving. But then there's this other side that the job is who you are. I was talking to a friend recently about what happens when you meet people. You say, hey, how you doing? What's your name? And then what do you inevitably ask very soon afterwards? What do you do? We identify one another by what we do. And I think if you're going to be detached from the matrix, that isn't your identity. It's something you do. Your identity is hidden in Christ, and the job is part of that package. So it doesn't change whether you have a job or even whether you're committed to your job. I think if you're a Jesus follower, Jesus lover... Your job ought to be a big deal. You ought to be the best worker you can possibly be, and the light of Jesus ought to shine out of you at all times, as much as possible. So it doesn't change any of that, but what it does change is your connection, your reliance, your identification, and it's just, it's just a difference. Your education is the same way. If you can think getting a degree is going to give you self-actualization and give, give you the answers you're seeking in life, I, I think your views are misplaced. But if you can be educated in order to be better equipped to love people well, and you can go through your education being built up and encouraged in God and, and becoming smarter and becoming a better bone doctor as my son wants to be when he grows up. And, he, and the funny thing is, he thinks anybody that does an x-ray is a bone doctor. So he, he wants to be a bone doctor. But you can, you can be a bone doctor that walks into the job thinking, 
thinking I'm going to serve people and help people today and be there for them in a time of need. Or you can be a bone doctor that thinks I'm just doing this so I can get on the golf course. I'm just doing this so I can pay off the student loans and then fill a, car, a garage full of cars and somehow achieve actualization in that process. I think there's a difference. I, I, I met a guy this week who works for public transportation, and I was asking him about his job, and he said, you know, one thing I love about my job is, he says, in our community, he was, in, he was from the Dallas area, he said, in our community, there are all kinds of single moms out there and all kinds of people on disability that if it weren't for what we do, they could not get from point A to point B. And he said, I think about that every day when I go into work. That mom that has got to get groceries from Kroger to her kids and has no transportation. He says, I love my job. Or he could be the guy that gets to his job and thinks, oh, man, I hate my job. Government, bureaucracy, red tape, hate this stuff. And it's just, it's just a difference of being. It's a difference of, of, of attitude and personality. Exercise is the same way. If you're, if you can exercise to be healthy and to love God with, with your strength and your energy, or you can exercise because you want the six-pack so that chicks will dig you. And I'm not saying you shouldn't want chicks to dig you, but I'm saying there's a difference in the heart behind it. There's a difference in, 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 in trying to impress everyone so that you will have an identity or just being who you are and being free to walk through life and being healthy. It also has to do with the purses you buy. It does. Let's face it. Now all the guys are going, yeah, get them. It has to do with the fishing boats too. Here's what, ha here's what happens. Chicks have like 300 pairs of shoes, and a guy buys one boat, and it's worth like 80,000 times the amount of the shoes, and he thinks he's justified for some reason. I don't get it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it, it, it does have to do with how you spend your money, how you shop, how, how you present yourself. There's nothing wrong with being fashionable. There's nothing wrong with enjoying fabric and colors and beauty. But there, I, in my opinion, there is something kind of out of whack if you think the shirt you're wearing is what makes you special. Because it just flat doesn't. It doesn't mean you can't wear the shirt. Do you see what I'm saying on all of these examples? It doesn't mean you can't have the purse. It doesn't mean you can't have the fishing boat. But it has to do with your identity. Like who are you and what really is important and special? Why are you the one? And you're not the one because of the boat or the fishing or the vacations or the education or the job. You're the one because Christ has filled you with life. Because the life of God is able to fill you and fill you with things like a compassionate heart. Fill you with things like mercy and joy and hope. I'm over time now. I'm going I'm to close with this idea also from Andy Dufresne. He says, you can get busy living or you can get busy dying. Embracing the matrix leads to a bad place. I, I, I'm not talking about hell. I'm not, I'm not, that, that's not what my intention at all. But if, if the purses are your life, if the vacations are your life, if the education is your life, or whatever it is that actualizes you is your end-all, be-all, it is all going down. It's all going to be gone. It's already gone. It's a mist that comes and goes and vanishes. But I think as followers of Jesus, that we should embrace what he said. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And my, my encouragement to you today is to treasure the spiritual life, treasure the inner life, invest in that. Take steps that are necessary to start investing in the, the life of spirituality and relationships. And I, th I think it'll, it'll take you to the place that God has you to be the one that he's designed you to be.